Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Hope everyone's doing okay after, was that Friday? That windstorm? I hear some of you this morning still don't have power. Um, but grateful that we do here. I know several of our, our churches around don't, do not have power this morning. Um, so just grateful to see you guys, grateful you're okay, uh, and grateful to be together in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning for Revolution Kids. Looks like we've got Rebecca, Erica, and Kaylee. You guys going to have a great time. All right. Yay. Well, we are continuing this morning in our Lenten teaching series called Renew, uh, Embracing Forgiveness in an Unapologetic World. And last week, we sort of started it off by talking about what that ministry of reconciliation really is that we've been called to, uh, not just being reconciled to God, but being reconciled to one another and experiencing that healing and that wholeness and that restor restoration of relationship, not just with God, but with one another, experiencing that renewal. And kind of in anticipation uh, of the Easter season and that Easter celebration, and in a world that doesn't really give us clear tools on how to actually extend the ministry of reconciliation, we are going to take a look in this series in some laws of repentance, some kind of steps that can help guide us through how to embrace uh, this ministry of reconciliation and forgiveness together. And so this morning may feel a little bit different because what I'm going to do is kind of part one is going to be looking at a passage of scripture that's uh, pretty uh, uh, popular when it comes to teaching on forgiveness. And we're going to take a look at that. And then part two is going to be looking at that first step or that first law of repentance with confession. And we're going to have that kind of lead us into our celebration of communion this morning. So our passage of scripture this morning, a very well-known teaching on forgiveness, comes from the Gospel of Matthew. This is verses 18, 21 through 35, and I'll read that for us here this morning. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or you might hear it 70 times, seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How many of you have heard this passage of scripture before? Uh, pretty, pretty popular, pretty common. Peter asks a clarifying question. They're kind of in a a season of teaching. Jesus is there teaching to the disciples and and the people, and and Peter asks a clarifying question. Okay, how many times should I actually forgive my brother? Seven? And it's important to note that seven is a pretty good guess. (laughs) Seven would have been considered a really generous answer. Rabbinical tradition, rabbinic tradition at the time would have said like two to three would have been like, whew, awesome, celebrated. If you forgive someone two to three times, that would be just really impressive. And then Peter, you know, seven is thought of to be a holy number. It's a, it's a number that represents sort of wholeness. And so I almost imagine Peter thinking, I got it. I got it, guys. I think it's seven. <laughs> you know, he's just been the one that says like, okay, that confession of faith on this rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And he's like, all right, guys, on the rock, I got it, right? Seven. And Jesus says, no, actually, not just seven, but 70 times seven. That's how many times you should forgive. And then he goes into this parable then to make his point even further about this, what's known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant owes, our first servant owes the king 10,000 talents. And you may know this, one talent was worth 15 years worth of wages, And so to owe the king 10,000 talents would be 150,000 years worth of wages. That's a lot of debt. Your first thought would be like, why in the world would you let someone borrow that much money, (laughs) right? Like they could, even if he sold, the the king was going to put this servant and his family in prison and then kind of like maybe even like to, to work off the debt. Even if his I mean, for generations, they would have to be in servitude to pay off this debt, not just that immediate family. I mean, this is a tremendous amount of debt, something no one person could ever pay off in their lifetime and even their family's lifetimes. It would be like saying you owe someone a gazillion dollars. My husband is a numbers guy, and he hates words that we've just made up to mean really big things, like gazillion (laughs) Like, it doesn't, it, it, it's not realistically quantifiable. And in this moment of outrageous generosity and mercy, the king graciously forgives this, this quite frankly, unforgivable debt. But then that saved servant, of course, goes and he finds, that, you know, a fellow man who owes him a hundred denarii. And for comparison's sake, one denarii is one day's worth of wage. So a hundred denarii would be a hundred days, a little over three months of work. That's not like nothing. That's not nothing to just sort of like, you know, dismiss. But we're talking 150,000 years worth of wages compared to a hundred, a hundred days of work. It's no, no trifling debt, but it's very affordable. It's very reasonable, something that one could pay off and, and even be forgiven. In this story, this parable, exaggeration seems to be the way Jesus makes his point here. 
he's using sort of hyperbolic language to teach Peter and the disciples about the true nature of God's forgiveness. The king is gracious beyond measure, forgiving this huge debt, infinite even, like God is to us and our sins and our shortcomings. The parable is supposed to prompt us to reflect and ask, what possible justification can we have for not forgiving others when God has forgiven us so much? In fact, it seems to be the one thing that the king finds unforgivable in the passage is the ability to not forgive. That's what he finds unforgivable. It's a powerful teaching on really the depth of God's love and mercy for us and a call to forgive. But it's one of those passages that I referred to last week that's also at risk for oversimplifying. It's also at risk for sort of coming up with these shorthand teachings that we then apply to all people in all places and all situations everywhere. Sort of some shorthand teachings that go, well, you just need to forgive and forget or forgive without calculation and without measure. Seven times 70, forgive. And even that last part of the passage where it can kind of even become sort of like, you know, weaponized against each other to say, if you don't forgive, then, and then read in a certain tone, it feels, it feels threatening. The summary of the simple way that we kind of summarize this is just to say, forgive no matter what anyone has done or no matter who it is. Just forgive. And I think that while that is in a certain like literal sense, there's a lot of truth uh, in this of, of, of God's great mercy and love and forgiveness for us that should empower us and inspire us to forgive. When we simplify those, when we shorthand that and we don't give it more context, we don't uh, give it a little bit more meat, it, you hear how it can cause damage to forgive no matter who it is or what has been done. And it leaves me with a few more questions, right? Like, who is Jesus really calling us to forgive seven times, 70 times? What's the context of this passage? And so if you back it up just a little bit, the passage right before Peter asks his question, Jesus is still, actually, he begins a teaching on forgiveness. He says this just right before Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, what's the context here? What group of people is he talking about? The church, the ecclesia, the gathering of believers in Jesus Christ. If a brother or sister in Christ sins against you, go to them, talk to them, tell them how you've been harmed. If they don't hear you, go and take a few other witnesses or some other leaders. 
And if they still don't hear you, kind of last resort, well, actually not last resort, but like, you know, go before the whole church, the whole ecclesia, the body of Christ, the family of God. And if they still don't receive it, if they still don't show repentance, if they, if they still don't kind of begin this process of reconciliation to restore a relationship with you, then as a last effort, as sort of a last option, then it would be to you like a Gentile or tax collector, not like sinner be gone from me, but not considered as a part of that family that Jesus is calling you here if a brother sins against you. So Jesus teaches this, and then Peter says, okay, well, how often will a brother or sister in Christ sin against me, and I'm called to forgive them? These two teachings go together. The first is Jesus' practical teaching on what to do on this process of restoring a relationship. And then the second is sort of this impractical, hyperbolic, exaggeration parable that's more about the mercy and, and generosity of God for us and what God has done for us. But they, they go together. It's really this church, it's a theme in the Gospel of Matthew, and the theme is on church community. That's the context here. What to do within a community of faith when a brother or, or sister sins against another brother or sister. One commentary says this, in the Bible, forgiveness isn't just letting it go and moving on. In the Bible, forgiveness is designed to be transformative. It's designed to restore relationships. It's a tool to be used in relationship within a community of faith, of anyone who claims to be with you in Christ, a body of believers. If forgiveness is just let it go, it becomes like enabling bad behavior, and that's not the point because then nothing changes. Forgiveness is about a new future, freeing us from the past and restoring a new future together in restoration of that relationship. So these guidelines on, on forgiveness that Jesus outlines, these, these hopes of reconciliation, this, these restoration of, of relationships here, it's almost as if they need not apply to the family, sorry, they need not apply to those outside of the family of faith in the same way that Jesus calls you to forgive one another within the family of faith. This doesn't mean that full restoration of relationship will always happen, too. Sometimes there are relationships that can't be preserved when there's no possibility of change. He outlines that as well. If the person uh, shows no remorse or no awareness, no repentance, offer it. Seven times 70, offer it. Seek out that forgiveness and that reconciliation. But if the other isn't responding, if the other has no uh, awareness, shows no remorse, there are sometimes in some places that a full rest, restoration, a full reconciliation, it, 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 won't, it, it cannot happen. And this is kind of the difference then between forgiveness and then full reconciliation. Because you all know here in this room that there are harms that have been done to us. That we may find healing, that we may forgive and let go and move on. But there's, there's no way that the full reconciliation with that person who caused us harm is going to happen because that would be like enabling bad behavior I'm thinking of like instances of we've experienced physical or emotional abuse 
that we, thanks be to God, I hope can experience healing uh, and freedom from that, but that God in this context is not calling us to be back in full reconciliation with that person if they've not shown remorse or repentance or change. Do you hear the difference? The context that Jesus is calling us to begin this process of full reconciliation among the body and believers of Christ, it begins with forgiveness. It begins with forgiveness. But there are some moments, there are some points when that that relationship may not be preserved. I love how James says it, uh, in, in chapter 5, it kind of gives us a snapshot of what this ministry of reconciliation in the context of a church community looks like. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's a beautiful picture of what this body of believers, this this ecclesia, the gathering of, of Jesus, believers in Christ, believers in Christ, of the ministry that they can offer to one another, to pray for each other, to confess your sins to one another. So both here and in Matthew chapter 18, that first step toward this process of forgiveness toward reconciliation, that very first step is confession. Confess your sins. When someone has harmed you, go to them and tell them how you have been Harmed if someone has sinned against you, Jesus says. If they don't receive it, then take others with you. But the first step is confession. And so it just so happens to be that that's also the first law of repentance that uh, we're going to be looking at uh, as a part of this process. I introduced this last week, but it's the five laws of repentance repentance written by a 12th century philosopher and rabbi a scholar of of jewish law by the name of moses maimonides and he basically wrote a commentary that was trying to make the the law really accessible uh, for people who may not have been scholars of the torah or or can read the talmud right he kind of combines some of these commentaries to offer some practical steps for living according to the law for everyday people And he calls them his laws of repentance. The first one, naming and owning harm. Confession. Naming it. Naming and owning harm. Confession, in this sense, is a disclosure of sin. An acknowledgement of guilt or harm. This is the first step toward restoring relationship. First, someone may confess to you how you might have harmed them. But then second, you have to sit with that. Acknowledge the harm and then confess how you might have wronged them as they have said. It's not, we're not even talking about apology yet. We're not even talking about saying I'm sorry or making amends or the change that comes later. We're not even talking about that yet. 
We're just talking about admitting and acknowledging when you have caused harm. It's that simple first step, whether the harm was intentional or not. It means you got to pause and hear and listen and understand how it is that the person standing before you felt harmed. This is an awkward first step. It's, it's hard because no one likes to be called out. No one likes to be told when we've messed up or when we've failed or when we have caused someone that we love harm. And what's the first thing that we usually do whenever this happens? What's your immediate sort of like, uh, you know, if pride is the root of all sin, what's our first immediate response? No, I didn't. didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Defensiveness. Yeah. Self-preservation. That's not what I meant. You're wrong. No, it's you. (laughs) It's to immediately get defensive and dismissive. And you know, if you've been the person that has stood before someone else to say, you know, this is so hard and it's so awkward that sometimes we don't even tell people when we feel hurt. Because it's just easier just to be like, I just don't even want to deal with all that emotional energy in the process. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I said, oh, I'm just going to, I can just forget it. I'll just let it go. I'll just shove it down. But then the, the patterns continue, right? That person who caused you harm doesn't know they caused you harm, so they might continue doing whatever it is that caused you harm to begin with. And so there's this the vulnerability and risk at work to, to even speak up to begin with, that first confession to say, hey, I need you to hear me. I've been hurt. And you're kind of hanging there in that balance waiting for their response, which again takes more vulnerability and risk to sit with that and to say, whoa, let me try to understand that. Let me try to understand that. In the uh, book that I've been referencing on repentance and repair, Daniel Rittenberg says this, starting the process with confession of harm goes against many of our cultural and often individual instincts to shift blame, to minimize the problem, to focus on our excellent and pure intentions, to put off an uncomfortable conversation to another day. This is hard. It's awkward. Uh, we, don't, we don't like to, to sort of feel this way. But it's that first step to restoring relationship among brothers and sisters in Christ for full reconciliation. You have to admit and acknowledge. This requires courage, right? It requires courage to admit and acknowledge that you might have caused harm. And then to do a little bit, this is where the spiritual discipline comes in, to do a little bit of some introspective work, some soul searching, to go, why? I wonder where that came from. Maybe it was your reaction to defend. You know, maybe, maybe it, it was you know, deep, some deeper stuff of, of stuff that you've dealt with from your past that triggers certain behaviors. None of this we like to look at, right? Looking at ourselves of that inward work, soul searching, to face the uglier, uglier parts of ourselves and our tendencies that we have to shift plane, to dismiss, to become defensive. Maybe even deep down, it's rooted in our sense of self-worth, that I can't be wrong, because if I'm wrong, then I'm a bad person. 
And that's different. Doing something bad and being bad are two different things. That's shame. That's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am wrong or I am bad. And, and we, we tie it in with our self-worth, which is why it's right there on the surface. We want to defend. We want to dismiss. We want to be right because then we're good. You hear how that spirals? <laughs> but if we do this work, if we are brave enough to listen to our brothers and sisters and the harm we have done, if we are brave enough to look inward and do that spiritual work to understand why we did what we did and how we caused harm, that is where we have the opportunity to grow. The path of repentance is one that can help us not only to repair what we have broken to the fullest extent possible, but to grow in the process of doing so. When we know better, we do better. We don't know what we don't know. And so if we have the, the courage to, to understand how we caused harm, then there's an opportunity for growth and for change, to grow in love and compassion and grace, maybe, maybe, just maybe become a little bit more like Jesus. The first law of repentance really needs to become for us a spiritual discipline of confession. And in our liturgy, I, I kind of introduced you to this last week, in our liturgy, we often will invite ourselves into a time of confession. Because again, this first law of repentance, it, it requires us to acknowledge our own guilt or, or ways that we have messed up or ways that we have not. And the first confession is before God. It's that acknowledgement of we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all got stuff that we're dealing with. Confession, when we approach this communion table, that first step is kind of laying our pride aside of that sort of, uh, that, that ego, right, of that armored self, Richard Ward calls it, that armored self uh, that gets us defensive in the face of correction. And this first step of confession to approach the communion table, it, it's an exercise of remembering who we are in Christ, it's not that armored self or who we tell ourselves that we have to be, that it's all up to us and we have to be right, but it's the truth that our identity is found in Christ who loves us. Before we do anything good or bad, God loves us. I love, our, in a podcast about our great Thanksgiving liturgy, our bishop called it this invitation to the table. It's like a returning home. It's coming back to this table and to our story of salvation to remember who you are and whose you are. The confession in the beginning is a moment to kind of have a waking up moment of doing some of that inner work of saying, where am I right now? Am I far away from the person God has created me to be? And if so, can I wake up and make a choice to do something different? And this table of grace tells us yes that we can be different because we are being created in Christ. We are new creations. There is hope and renewal and change available to you. So he calls it a coming back home to the table. 
at coming back home to who you really are. And the first step is confessing our sins before God, confessing that we have all failed at times, and then also confessing our sins before one another. And so I'm going to open us up then with, with sort of lead us toward that table and talk just briefly about that opening part. But I want to invite you now, these, this is from um, our liturgy of our great thanksgiving for the season of Lent. And I want you to hear this invitation. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. So will you join me, friends, in this prayer of confession? Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Forgive us, we pray. Do you see that line? Free us for joyful obedience. Friends, we can't free ourselves. We try. We try to be good. We try to do all the right things, which is why when we're called out, we don't like it. But all of this is a work of God through Christ Jesus, who sets us free. The ministry of reconciliation has been given to us, and it starts with the work of Jesus Christ, who makes being reconciled to one another even possible. All of this is initiated by God to free us for joyful obedience. There's one more little bit of that passage that we've been kind of working through. That when he gives these instructions, when a brother sins against you, this is what to do. And before he gets to the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Y'all, how many of you know that verse, but only in the context of like prayer and worship? Right? The context is like, okay, what, what two, wherever two or three of us are gathered, the Spirit of Christ is there with us, which is true. But the original context is actually here. In the context of reconciliation, whenever two or three of you gather and you find agreement and you find confession and healing, the promise is that the Spirit of Christ is there with you because that's hard. Facing our ugliest parts, facing how we have harmed someone that we love, those are hard conversations. And the promise is that when we do those things, the Spirit of Jesus Christ who redeemed us and set us free and reconciled us will be with us to empower us to extend that same ministry of reconciliation. This table that we come to each Sunday is a table 
of reconciliation. It's a table of grace. It's a table where we tell our story and remind ourselves of who we are and what we need. And we come to it as one people, redeemed together. After a moment of silence, after the prayer of confession, the tradition is for you to hear an absolution from the pastor. But then at the end, the people respond to the pastor and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Friends, I don't know if you realize what happens in that moment, but that's you all extending that same reconciliation to me. Recognizing my need and my humanity and that I'm here among you as one of us, a part of this people, and that we all approach this table together humbly in need of grace. When we, when we go through this liturgy together, y'all, that is the most powerful part for me. Because I need to hear the words of y'all speaking that same reconciliation over me. Of the good news of Jesus Christ together. So people of God, hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. And friends, as members now of the body of Christ that have been reconciled to God and one another, I want to invite you to stand and I want you to share signs of Christ's peace with one another. Extend a hand and say, the peace of Christ be with you. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Friends, you're going to join with me now in the prayer of the giving. I invite you to remain standing if you feel comfortable as we, uh, again, prepare to approach uh, this table of grace together. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. You brought all things into being and called them good. From the dust of the earth, you formed us into your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, you bore up the ark on the waters, saved Noah and his family, and made covenant with every living creature on earth. When you led your people to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, you gave us your commandments and made us your covenant people. When your people forsook your covenant, your prophet Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and on your holy mountain he heard your still small voice. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven together, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. When you gave him to save us from our sin, your spirit led him into the wilderness where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights to prepare for his ministry. When he suffered and died on a cross for our sin, you raised him to life, presented him alive to the apostles during 40 days and exalted him at your right hand. 
by the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. Now when your people prepare for the yearly Easter feast of Easter, you lead us to repentance for sin and the cleansing of our hearts, that during these 40 days of Lent, we may be gifted and graced to reaffirm the covenant you first made with us through Christ. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took a cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant that's been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim now together the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup? Would you make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood? By your spirit, O oh God, make us one with Christ. Make us one with each other and make us one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen.